Hi everyone, I'm Laura Warnod, and this is the Wonder Workers podcast. Wonder Workers is an interview-based podcast where I invite change makers to talk about their experience, their mission, and drive towards impacting the world, and ultimately to inspire, educate, and empower entrepreneurs, business leaders, and owners, and young people on how they can build together a more sustainable world. This community of wonder workers act behind the scenes to lead the world towards a new era of purpose, self-actualization, and innovation. This is a generation who shows no limits to what they can accomplish, no tolerance for dehumanization, and use their uniqueness as a real power to change the world. We want to invite you, responsible leaders, entrepreneurs, young people, and all other listeners in your quest for purpose to give you, too, the power to change the world. But having powers alone does not make us superheroes. Even them need allies. It's only when we accept our differences, combine our powers, belong and thrive together that our forces can turn into superpowers. We are Wonder Workers, a community of change makers, entrepreneurs, business owners, and aspiring ones who use their superpowers collectively to change the world. So tell me, what are your superpowers? In today's episode of Wonder Workers, we are with Corner Hill. Let me tell you the story of how I got encountered with Corner's work. I think it was back in 2019, I joined Clubhouse when it was, I think, at its peak, really. And I joined a couple of fashion, environmental and climate change conversations. And I swear, Connor was always in those conversations. Um, and I was like really impressed because Connor was always really open about his ideas, his vision, his opinions and and where the conversation needs to shift, really, in terms of circular fashion and circular economy. And so I started to follow his work on all socials. And then, you know, I was really inspired by his views, his positivity and determination to drive innovation and partnership with fashion brands. I feel like we as you know, consumers and businesses, we still have so much to learn about the circular economy and circular fashion and how it works and what needs to be done by consumers and businesses to change that. So I'm really excited to be talking to Corner today about it as, I mean, you're an expert in the area, right? Um, and we'll talk today about his journey, his mission to build a more circular economy, but also how his business is having an impact on the world and what we can do to help him in his mission. Connor is the founder of Inspire Circular, a consultancy helping brands, businesses build industry-leading circular strategies. In partnership with Enterprise, Inspire Circular create new consumer-focused circular products and services to inspire change. Connor's mission is to create a generation of circular change makers and ensure that all waste is reborn. Prior to founding the business, Corner spent more than 10 years leading sustainability and circular economy programs in-house at Adidas, John Lewis, and Mark and Spencer. His pioneering projects include Futurecraft.loop, the world's first fully circular trainer, 
and John Lewis Buyback, inspiring thousands of customers to give their used clothes a new life and combat clothing waste. Connor is also the program lead at the University of Cambridge for the Circular and Sustainability Strategies Executive Leadership Course. In 2022, Connor has launched a new Inspire Circular six-week online course in partnership with the brands and startup to make circularity a reality. I mean, we had a, a first conversation before this recording and, you know, the, the conversation was already so interesting and inspiring. So I can't wait for all listeners to get the insights uh, I've been getting from you so far. So let's jump in. Perfect. Perfect. Sounds good. <laughs> thank you for being here, Connor. really. Yeah, thank you for the invite. It's a huge part of what I want to do is just, yeah, exactly as you've said there, like inspire other people that... Circularity, yeah, some, some parts of it are new, some parts are maybe a little bit harder, but actually some parts are incredibly easy. And I love uh, inspiring brands, individuals about what are those really low-hanging opportunities that don't take too much to get after and can make a huge, huge difference. So opportunities like this is great just to show what are those easy bits that people can get started on. You don't have to have a degree. You don't have to have any accreditation or anything. You can just get after it. Some of it's so, so simple. And I love just making that easy for other people. Amazing. Yeah, I feel you are as excited as I am to <laughs> to have this conversation. So that's great. But let's start first by you telling us more about yourself and who you are, your story, really, right from the beginning. Yeah, perfect. So um, I don't know. So I guess at school, like I love biology, geography, business, sport, all these sort of elements. And um, I didn't really want to study any of them individually at uni. I wanted to do something uh, where I could come out the other end of uni and go straight into a job. And, you know, lots of people do geography and things like that. It's like, I want to niche down faster. And I knew that, you know, the Kyoto Protocol had been signed. I didn't see government making big dents, uh, big changes. And I saw there was big limitations there. So I really believed that the private sector was going to be the sector that could move the needle um, because they can really... Uh, change the world in certain extent around the volume of materials they're using and selling, how they make them, but also how they engage consumers. So the way that a Nike can really inspire their customers when they go into their flagship, they can really like change a mindset, change a behavior. Whereas some other brands and some other businesses, it's much, much harder to do that. So I really wanted to get into the private sector, the consumer businesses. So studied sustainability at uni back in like 2006, 2007. So quite a long time ago then. And throughout that, I was still loving sport. I was like, oh, I don't want to do sport. I don't want to do sustainability. So I sort of was always blending the two. Um, traveled for a little bit after uni, went to the Rugby World Cup and worked there. And it was a fantastic wow. job. Um, oh, my God. And like, I love this. And they sort of said, oh, would you want to work at the Olympics when you get back? I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> and then they said, like, it was, you know, a short term contract and the salary was going to be less than what I would get if I signed on to Job Seeker Allowance is what it's called here in the UK. And I was like, wait, how can how can you work at the world's biggest event and they pay you less than or I'd get paid more if I don't have a job. So I just didn't feel this fairness, mm -hmm. um, lots of money in the Olympics and all these other big events. I was like, hmm, maybe that's not the one for me. Mm -hmm. um, so I really... Wow, so you say no. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, okay, there's a sign here that I want to feel valued and I want to make a difference. So I did my dissertation at uni all around Marks and Spencers. They were one of the big leaders at the time. They were doing a lot of things way before anyone else. 
So started my career with them and joined Mike Barry and Carmel McQuaid, Adam Elman, like a really like amazing team who had a lot of foresight of what business needed to be in the future. So I started working there as their sort of graduate sustainability person, got to work with the food team, their property team, furniture. It was incredible. It was a perfect, perfect place to start. And because they said vocally, externally, they wanted to be the world's most sustainable retailer, it meant you had the NGOs also like testing that, which meant you had to really good systems, really good reporting, due diligence, really good strategy. Um, so it was great to learn from a lot of other people and, you know, be pushing the boundaries quite early on. Mm. Then from there, I got to bring back the sport a little bit and Adidas reached out and said, would I like to join them at their HQ in, um, in Germany? Mm. And so me, that was great. I got to take all the learnings from M&S and then bring my sports part into the fashion Perfect. and think about how Adidas can start to change who it wants to be in the future. Mm. You know, they sell a lot of products, like all big uh, brands. And it was like, how do you engage the customer around that? So back then in 2014, 2015, recycled polyester, you know, it was early, early days. People were like, wait, so that's like old packaging melted down and then a t-shirt. People were like, this sounds dirty, right? Mm -hmm. So it was really hard to convince consumers to buy this product that maybe even cost more back then. Mm -hmm. So my role was to think about, okay, how do we start to communicate sustainability to the consumer? Mm -hmm. So we started doing various programs around this and they started to grow, which was fantastic. But then it was also my role to then start to think about well, what happens with this stuff afterwards. You know, someone uses a marathon trainer for a pretty short time. What happens with it next? Someone has plays football, but they play on five different surfaces. That means they've got five different football boots they're using at one go. This is a lot of products. And where do they all end up? So I was really starting to question, how does Adidas start to move to a direction which is towards circularity? And that's looking at different products. So one of the ones you mentioned there, the Futurecraft Loop, which is was renamed Made to be Remade, was looking at a shoe which is made of like 13 different components, typically all glued together, almost impossible to get those materials back at the end of its life into individual material streams and then create a valuable recycled material for the next part. So with that, it was like, how do you make a shoe out of one material with no glue, no dye that could be theoretically melted down and turn into another product again and again. So that product's got going, you know, there's still a lot of learning there. I wouldn't say it's perfectly circular, but it's progress in that sort of direction. And then after that, I came to back to the UK, worked with John Lewis to set up their circular economy strategy. And then after that, I was then looking at like, okay, what do I want to do next? I've now done 10 years in-house. Yeah. I've learned an incredible amount from incredible people, but it was really, really... I feel very fortunate that a lot of people were reaching out on LinkedIn saying, can you help us? Can we have a coffee? Mm -hmm. And I was kind of getting a little bit frustrating internally because I saw all these people wanting just to have a coffee chat and stuff. Mm -hmm. And unless I was doing it in my evenings or the weekends, I didn't have time because I had a day job. And I think that itch was just getting to me a little bit because there was so many brands that were hungry and it was their founders who were saying, we're, we need this, like, just a little bit of guidance. So, yeah, in the middle of COVID, I was like, OK, let's go for this. Let's go independent for a while and see where that path goes. So, yeah, that's now like two and a half years in of being independent. And, yeah, it's great fun. Wow. I mean, what an amazing experience. I feel like I'm wondering, like, if we go back a little bit back at the beginning. So you said... You know, you studied sustainability at university. Back then, sustainability was, you know, we talked about it, but it wasn't such a urgent, important topic as, you know, we're seeing today. So how did you start to 
you know, be interested in sustainability and where did it start? So I'm one of four kids. So that's already quite a lot of consumption going on in one household. Even if you just look at the fridge and the amount of milk cartons we'd go through each week, like there's a lot of mounting up plastic here in the garage. And strangely, in our local area, milk cartons was one of the first things you could recycle. But you had to drive about 15 minutes to another town to go to the place you could recycle that one specific thing. So I was just seeing the effort that my mom was going to, to drive all these milk cartons to another town. And you were seeing the black bags filling up. So I was like, wow, this is a lot of effort for one family to recycle only one of the things, materials. Mm. Like there has to be an easier way. Why is the government not collecting this and sorting this? Go back five years and everyone on the street was getting milk in a glass bottle. Mm. Perfectly circular or pretty much a circular system. So I guess I was seeing this frustration of why was it a race to the bottom? Like mm. as human beings, we putting crap everywhere where we sleep. Like, why would you do that? No other animal does that. We are cutting the oxygen off our oxygen masks by burning the trees around the world. Like, those trees are our oxygen. Like, why do we do this? Mm. And when is it ever going to stop? Mm -hmm. And there was no slowing down at that time. So I guess I was getting frustrated and, uh, and confused at why the system was this way. Why was the global north just so fixed on growth mm -hmm. and the global south was a lot of the time paying the price for that. So I guess there's a bit of confusion, frustration, imbalance that I kind of wanted to try and navigate, like how can brands be part of a solution rather than the problem? Mm -hmm. And if I go like in another sort of avenue, my granny was like incredibly frugal, like wartime, stuff like this. <laughs> and you go there and I remember it so distinctly. We were just walking to like the post office or something and she saw like a rubber band on the floor that was broken. And she just picked it up like as if she just found like a 10 pound note. Mm. She was like, oh, brilliant. I was like, oh, it's like dirty, whatever else. It's like, <laughs> what are you on about? It's like, this is perfect. I just yeah. tie a knot in it and it's a rubber band again. So her value that she sees in materials was completely lost in my generation, uh, potentially even the generation above. We see dirt, we see rubbish on the floor, but they see value. They're like, that's a rubber band. Tie a knot, it's a rubber band again. Don't need to buy another one. And, and it goes in our top drawer. Mm. Like just tiny little bits like that. I'm mm. like, wow, we're so lost in Black Friday and whatever else. Sale, sale, sale. Buy a new outfit for a holiday. We don't understand the value of materials, mm -hmm. the effort that's gone into them. And if we look after them in a way, in a different way, they'll last an incredibly long period of time. So from a psychology point of view, I'm always really interested in this. And how do we do behavior change? You go back to what we did before. Circular economy is definitely not a new thing. It's just a different branding of frugality for, say, 90% of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like it sounds like you've like always been very conscious about things too, because I think we are from the same generation more or less. And, um, you know, I haven't been educated in a way that, you know, taught me to be very conscious about the way I consume and the way I uh, throw away stuff. And now I'm trying to, to change that, obviously. So it's a lot of, you know, we've been learning and now we're trying to unlearn. But it seems like for you, it's, you know, you've been conscious of that for a very long time. That's super impressive. And so you then you worked for like companies in-house to try to bring their sustainability strategies forward. And you had 10 amazing years working for really three big brands. Is there a reason why you um, didn't keep doing this work in-house for companies? Why did you decide to go solo, I guess? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, I think 
in a way, it's never been easier to be an entrepreneur. Mm, no. You don't need to have a shop front. You don't need to have an office. You literally just need a laptop and some internet mm. and you can start a business. Mm-hmm. And the way that LinkedIn and other platforms like that enable you to get your point of view out there. Every hour of the day, if you're sitting by the computer posting, there's so much happening on LinkedIn. You could be commenting about that. So you can launch a business, um, share your point of view and get it out there pretty quickly. And I was doing that to a small degree when I was working in-house. And that's partly why people were then reaching out on LinkedIn saying, okay, I like Connor's point of view. He's got, you know, that's interesting. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Whatever else. Or my commentary on legislation or maybe one brand was doing this. And I was saying, it's great. But what else? could they be doing that would make this even better would be this one, two, three. Mm, so you were also challenging them in a way. Yeah, or, or even like saying this is fantastic. It's 90% there, but it's almost like saying like if you just tweak this, you could have made it even better. Mm-hmm. So it's looking at things really holistically. And it's not actually to be critical. It's trying to be constructive as well. I think because I was doing that and I like... I really help inspiring people and enabling them to see like that pathway that built that confidence. Okay, there's other people out there that want uh, or need support and they're Mm -hmm. reaching out Mm -hmm. because it's easy to get your point of view out there and things like that. That gave me the confidence. Okay, people are interested in what I'm saying and they're asking for help before I've even started a business. Had I not had that, I think I would go back and be like, oh, God, I would have that fear, right? Of like, yeah. oh, a monthly salary is really nice. A pension's really nice. Like, mm-hmm. why would I want to give that up? <laughs> but the brands that were reaching out could have been tiny little startups. They could have been someone fresh out of uni. And because they were passionate about what they believed in, that gave me the passion back. And, you know, anyone listening to this who works in a big company, you've got so many KPIs you need to hit. And sustainability is sometimes very integrating those in at the very start. And sometimes it's an afterthought. Sometimes it gets cut out. Mm. And I guess having worked 10 years in different companies, I'd seen some great programs get there launch. We did a lot of pilots that didn't make it through. All of that was learning. And I couldn't be where I am today had I not had those 10 years. Right. But I think I was at a stage where I was like, there's all these companies that are ready to go. It's the founder reaching out, the other people. They're the decision makers. And I believe that in this moment in my career, I want to be helping the people that are ready to make a difference today. Mm. Whereas, again, whichever big company you're in, you're always going to have different challenges to compete with, particularly Mm. now. Like some companies are fighting for survival, Mm -hmm. so they really have to prioritize really, really hard. Um, And that's totally fine. But I was ready to work and help people who were ready to invest in these things and and to work a little bit more autonomously mm. and bring in the startups that I thought were, were like incredible at doing their thing. And I mean, a lot of what I'm doing, it's, I'm almost like this Tinder of the circular economy, right? So you have these <laughs> incredible like startups mm-hmm. who have got these incredible solutions, but they don't know how to get in the front door a brand. Mm. And the brands are like, oh my God, there's so many startups out there who can offer solutions or we do it in-house. And I'm almost matching the two together. And I love that sort of position of, okay, Burberry, you want to do this thing over here? Well, I would actually recommend this startup here in this market for this product. And that sort of like just being really in the middle of the nuclei of the circular economy. I really, really enjoy that. So that gives me a lot of energy. Yeah, no, so it's almost about, you know, sharing the same vision, the same mission and kind of coming together to tackle the challenges out there. And I think, you know, as I've had a look on your website, I love the fact that you are really a believer in building 
partnerships between brands and circular enablers and their communities to really make a change. And, you know, as I told you, I think today we're having a lot of great conversations, but I feel like it's sometimes happening like very separately. Sometimes you have businesses that have their own challenges and their own interests, and then you have change makers or like business owners that are tackling this and that. And at the end, we end up working a bit in silos and like separately on our sides. And I think that, you know, I don't know if it's because we are in a kind of scarcity, competitive profit economy as well still. But I feel like people are still a bit quite reticent to like collaborate and share knowledge um, and just have those kind of partnerships. And since you collaborate with brands on a day-to-day, can you tell us a little bit more about how do you see that collaboration and knowledge sharing and partnerships coming to life and the kind of tangible and positive innovation that this has brought in companies? Sure thing. So um, you always have to remember, like, a lot of this innovation is happening and the consumer doesn't see it and never will because it's happening in the supply chain, it's happening in the logistics centers, all of these sorts of things, right? Mm. So I think some of the startups are creating solutions which they could have many different customers, right? They could work with many different brands. And then some of them are very, very bespoke solutions, So I think that's like maybe one starting point. So you've probably all received an online order from a company and the product inside is actually very small, but the box, the outer carton it's in is massive. It's like why there's so many of these boxes on this truck. And if you imagine, you know, a thousand of those, you've actually got very few products in there. But if only that outer box was packed like as close as possible to that product and still protect it, because that's important as possible, then you get so many more products on every single truck, right? So for me, like those sort of startups who can make a machine that can shape a large slab of uh, cardboard around that product exactly, those are the sort of things that are really interesting to me Mm. because then that's something that can scale across the world. Mm. So that sort of technology, yeah, is exciting because you're going to save trucks on the road, you're going to stop shipping so much air and you're going to use a lot less cardboard. And consumer as well, from a branding point of view, it means they don't have to put as much in the recycling bin. So you've got lots of different wins in that space. Um, In terms of some of the other startups, I think one of the things I really like looking at is fashion for goods. So fashion for goods are based in um, Amsterdam. And and one of their main skills is scouting who are these next people out on the horizon. So they're looking at, you know, what is the best new dyeing technique that's sustainable, waterless, whatever else? Is it using natural dyes? Is it using bacteria or enzymes to dye? Really, really cool technologies. So I think that platform of bringing those new uh, startups in, incubating them, and then inviting the brands along to those demo days is another Mm. really good way for those startups getting out there. Um, And then the brand can obviously decide, yeah, we want to work with them. We want to build something up. So there's lots of different ways the startups can now connect with the brands. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's always case by case for me. And like Mm. like a lot of our brands are in the fashion space, but they're also in the furniture. They're also in the sports space. Some of them are more in the the tech space. So there's different startups all around the place and different ones are going to enable in very different ways. And some of them are also at different maturity. Mm. And that's in some ways where you need the big brands because... You know, if it's a new fiber to fiber recycling plant, they're not cheap to scale up to the size of a paper mill. So you need these brands to co-invest at the very start, you know, almost predict or secure demand. Like here, if this fiber works, we're going to buy a certain amount of that output 
and that really gives the investors confidence to build that new plant. Mm. So that's a different kind of partnership, mm-hmm. uh, much bigger investment, much more on the innovation side. Okay, it's very interesting. And I feel like sometimes when we're having this conversation or when I hear those conversations happening around and we talk about you know, global challenges like climate change and pollution and waste and we talk about the circular economy and how technology can bring that to life. But then I feel like sometimes we miss the um, the important impact on people. Mm-hmm. And so I'd really like your view on what what do you think is the social impact of, you know, bringing circular economy to life and circular fashion? Because like many other brands, they also, you know, work with Chinese factories. Yeah, What's so the social impact um, of the circular economy and how like the circular economy can actually help with that sure Uh, thing sure thing so uh, specifics around labor in certain countries yeah huge huge area where brands take responsibility need to take responsibility to have really good relationships with their suppliers be incredibly transparent with their end customer as well of how and where products made and i think certain brands are doing like really really good effort to be able to pinpoint and you know starting to look at blockchain so you can know exactly who sold this part of your garment what they were paid where they were um, all of these things you know have they had literary training numeracy training all of these sorts of things mm-hmm. consumers are going to start to ask for that more and more because they've watched a uh, a Zac Efron on Netflix, a Coldplay talking about it, Billy, mm. like all these sorts of things. So mm. consumers are getting way more conscious about this and that's absolutely fantastic. And therefore that means more pressure is going on the brands to be able to answer those questions. Mm. Otherwise, consumers are going to just move to the other brand that is able to tell them that sort of information. Mm. So I think that is a really good, I'm not going to say trend, but like behavior change, knowledge, the baseline knowledge of consumers is just going up and up and up mm-hmm. and it gets more and more demanding. And then certain you know, EU legislation starting to catch up with that as well. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really important. In terms of what it means on a brand level and the circularity, well, if we think about circularity, it's about how do we get the fewest amount of materials lasting as long as possible, going in all those loops, all those cycles, or eventually it goes back to nature. Now, mm-hmm. we can only go back to nature if it's free of chemicals and other hazardous, horrible things, right? Mm. So if you can design a product at the start that doesn't have those hazardous, horrible chemicals in it, it's going to be a lot more ethical mm-hmm. or or nicer for someone mm-hmm. to work in that area where those products are being dyed if there aren't those chemicals there. And mm. obviously, hopefully, they've got all the right um, PPE and things like that on. But the more that we can design a product at the very start, skipping out all those horrible chemicals, chlorines, things like that, then at least that part of the supply chain gets a little bit better. I'm not going to say it's perfect, but it's going to be a bit better. And that goes beyond fashion. It goes into automobiles. It goes into everything, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. We need to really understand who our suppliers are, have a great connection there, go and visit them regularly. So you really see your products being made there and it's not being outsourced to some other areas, right? Mm. So that's really, really important. And from a social point of view and, you know, the the ultimate aim is let's get everyone in the world up to a living wage. And what does that look like? Okay, well, that's really going to change the supply chain a lot. Mm. You really have to, again, have really close relationships with your suppliers in order to enforce that and to build that and be transparent around it as well. Now, the other part that's really important, which isn't talked about nearly enough, is we often think about the social and ethical part of the supply chain in terms of how it's made. But we rarely talk about where it ends up. 
So we have this bubble idea that we finish with a product because it doesn't fit us anymore. We fall out of love with it. We buy something new. We give it to the charity shop and we think, fantastic. I've done something good for that charity and somebody in need or can't afford the new clothes and maybe wants that. Or now some really cool vintage person that's mm. cooler than me anyway will <laughs> wear it and it'll look amazing, right? So that's great. But if we keep this speed of overconsumption, overproduction up, it still has to go somewhere. Yeah. So we still feed the machine as every time we consume. It might go to a charity shop, fantastic. Definitely don't put it to landfill. But the charity shop, they will take the best of the best stuff, right? There's always going to be some pieces that maybe comes started from a fast fashion brand. Uh, consumer finished with it. It's now like stretched, you know, some of the stitching's coming out. The quality of it's really degraded. Like who's potentially going to buy that in a charity shop? It might have a limited audience. And suddenly when you have, you know, 50% of the time of the stuff coming in, I'm just making that number up, mm -hmm. is that low quality stuff? Then you're going to start to flood these charity shops and they're not going to be able to sell this stuff here in the UK mm. and they need to start exporting it to other markets. Mm. Now that's been happening for years and years now. And big companies like Shein who are producing millions and millions of different products it's disgusting like yeah, it's the terrible. way they're using and abusing this world it's careless today and it's thoughtless for future generations mm. so until those fast fashion companies can slow down the tap start making quality products skip out the nasty chemicals then essentially we're just going to be exporting the problem exporting their waste their broken products to the global south now when they arrive in Ghana you know, a lot of these products, there's huge, huge volumes. There's, again, over uh, importation and it's not, some of this is locked into trade deals. So uh, the US, for example, they have better trade relationships with places like Ghana because there's an import of products from Ghana into America. So they get favorable import rates mm. and they only get those if they accept the exported secondhand clothing from other countries like America. Mm. So this has been in the press for the last couple of years of different countries in Africa facing that challenge of, do we really want to keep importing the secondhand clothing where up to 40% of it is non-usable and therefore will quite often end up in a landfill almost straight away. And sometimes these landfills are then burnt or go on fire. So you can imagine, you know, if you're a school kid having to go to school, breathing in that burnt plastic t-shirt whatever it is it's not going to be good for your health at all and you're not only that walking to school you're living beside this when it rains that ash with all those chemicals is going into the river is going into the sea you're eating the fish there you go all those chemicals are going back into your body so for me the social the ethical part of the supply chain is really really important upstream but we need to start focusing more around the downstream as well and taking responsibility and i think that's where legislation really needs to come in and start taxing brands through extended producer responsibility legislation, which is, we see it with packaging just now, but the tax is far too low. So if you sell a product that's got lots of packaging, so let's just think if you buy a laptop, it's going to have a big box and things, you have to pay for a tax or the brand pays a tax for that cardboard to be recycled. It's a really, really low tax, but we need something similar in the fashion space. We need it in electronics um, to ensure well, there is it in the electronics and products that contain batteries, but it's just not a high enough tax to finance the investment in the recycling infrastructure that we need. If we get that, then we might start to, um, now this isn't a solution, but it just means that what can't be reworn is recycled rather than landfilled or incinerated. Mm. So we can't just 
come up with a solution that here we're going to recycle a load more because we get a tax. Like we still need to turn off the tap at the start, like the overconsumption and the overproduction. But if we have a solution at the very end, it can help in a small way. And, you know, if we want to economically invest in this space as well, like why are we not thinking about putting some of those uh, textile recycling centers and machines in Ghana where the supply chain is already going and then you can create higher value jobs in that area that's then creating a high value recycled fiber that can go back into the marketplace to create new products again and again. Mm. We don't have time today, but like yeah. <laughs> uh, the Ore Foundation is incredible so definitely follow them on instagram they're there in ghana they've got an incredible amount of projects on just now around helping entrepreneurs who are in these horrible debt cycles uh, the women who are carrying these huge bales of clothing on their head and they're really damaging their spines so they help them with physio there's an incredible amount of knowledge there and that's where mm. a lot of my knowledge comes from and i also need to educate myself more there as well of course um, mm. yeah yeah no, that makes sense. And we'll put that in the notes of the, the, the podcast as well, because I think it's it's really interesting. And I guess that reminds me of the documentary, The True Cost. And it's, it's exactly that. It's like this absolutely awful thing that is impacting our health, our environment, our homes. And it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's, killing people all over the world. And it's really a, like a, a tragedy. And I think that's why we need more people like you actually bringing change to those organizations and talking about it and finding solutions together. So I think it's it's so important. And there is something that I'd like to go back to that, you know, you we kind of touched on. You did a circular fashion series with the University of Arts of London, right? Yep. That is on YouTube, um, which I watched. And by the way, I recommend everyone to to watch it because it's very short between one and 12 minutes clips and it gives you like an amazing overview of how the fashion circular economy works. It's very practical and digestible. And I think, you know, you talked about in this series and even a bit now, like what's the reason we wear clothes? Like what's really the purpose of fashion? And, you know, back then it was like a shelter to protect mm -hmm. ourselves. Um, then it was a way to show signs of belonging to a community, whether being part of a tribe or like a certain class of society and how this has changed with the industrial revolution and what you just talked about now. And I think, you know, there's something I've been asking myself too for a while and I don't have the answer, but I'd like to discuss that with you is... I think there are today at least, but even before, like other really positive sides of fashion that sometimes we don't talk about enough. And I think, you know, the first one is how fashion influence us, right? In the way we dress, in our styles. It's always been about trend in a way um, and influence. Like, for example, back in the 16th or 17th century, the Queen Elizabeth I, she was at the time a fashion influencer like Oscar Wilde and other mm -hmm. celebrities. And I think fashion has changed because of those celebrities that inspired trend and style. And then there is this aspect of, I mean, to me, fashion is also a way to express myself and show creativity and show little pieces of myself and express who I am as an individual and it's, it's sometimes a way to make us feel and seen too, mm -hmm. because we talk about, you know, this unstoppable 
race for always bringing new stuff and having new trends. And, and that's really bad for the planet and for, for our people. And actually, we don't need that many you know, new stuff all the time. Like, I don't think there's a lot of people actually going every day or every week buying new clothes. But at the same time, I feel like we need this aspect of fashion, you know, being a trend and feeling like we belong in society and so on. And so my question is, can this come in a way hand to hand with the circular fashion economy? So I guess the question is like, are, are we addicted to newness? Mm-hmm. Can we get ourselves off that addiction and, and drug? Yeah, many people do. Like, yeah. like it can happen. But also and finding a balance between having style and trend, which mm-hmm. I think is not, I don't think it's going to go away. Right. But, you know, you tell me what yeah, you think. Yeah, it's like, um, I think we see like two splits at the moment. We see younger generations, some are like, you had disposable income, you had this newness, you had your fashion. I want my moment to have all this fashion. Mm. So you see that and it's almost like, I want, it's sort of like, you had it, why can't I have it? Mm. Whether you see that through the boohoo and things like this of people just consuming, consuming. Mm. But then you also see this younger generation that's really savvy with their money. And they're like, I can't afford to have anything. I don't need to have everything. I'm going to invest in better quality pieces. And I know they're going to last a long time. And I'm going to mix and match them with lots of different things. So you've got a couple of big staple pieces. Mm. And then maybe you're going to different brand to then just change it up a little bit or accessorize it with vintage things. and things. So they're getting smart around how do you get the newness, invest in quality, but they get the newness by playing it up with some vintage pieces, maybe mm. even going to people like Lone Hood, which is a peer-to-peer rental market. So you and I can rent out our own clothes. It doesn't need to be premium clothes necessarily. It could be things you've even made yourself. Mm. So I love what Lone Hood are doing there. They're making rental really accessible, not super high-end fashion pieces. Um, the idea is you find someone who's a similar style to you in your local neighborhood. So it doesn't even need to be put in the post or whatever else. Like you just meet them at the local underground station, whatever else, and you swap a couple things over. They're same size, same style. Brilliant. So that means that your wardrobe, instead of being, you know, a meter wide and a few hangers and whatever else, it suddenly could be 50 meters wide and you get access to all these incredible things in your local neighborhoods. You don't even need to do the postage and whatever else. And generally with Lone Hood's platform as well, the owner of the product washes the product at the end of it as well, just to ensure it's washed in the right way as well. So I think that's really, really exciting. I think the scale and speed of vintage is amazing and I really hope that continues Mm -hmm. and vintage secondhand I know there's a bit of a difference between the two but I think that is fantastic Mm. and then going back more to like the tech startup side of things Mm. it's really easy for brands to offer rental uh, service as well whether you be high end or low end so there's lots of 3PLs so you don't even need to manage the rental in your own warehouse you can send your stock to somebody else and they'll manage all of it Mm. so there's some really really cool Um, partners doing that that makes it easy and again that helps a consumer to get the newness without having to invest in this product that they might only wear a couple times particularly if we're thinking you know this time of year festive season people are maybe wearing dresses once or twice they don't want to wear it next year they want that newness Um, I know that's not everyone but some people so why are they not renting those things so that is actually a huge growth area you see lots of people from higher streets to her there's like a lot of them now um Mm. So I think that isn't going to go away now. Mm. And I think now we get into the winter season. I've rented ski jacket and ski trousers before. That just made sense. I don't go skiing often. I want yeah. the something that 
okay, functionally works good, performance good, breathability in it here. If it looks good as well, fantastic. Mm. Mm. But I want to ensure that I'm warm at the top of the mountain. If I fall over, which happens, yeah. uh, <laughs> rather than wearing like my more my city jacket, because I'm mm. just like whatever else. So I think we can have consumption um, in a way, get our newness. Rental isn't perfectly circular. It just means that the product is going to get a better um, utilization during its first generation of its life. Now, mm. what makes it circular is that the, that product, once it's had, you know, lots of different rentals is, you know, it's repaired multiple times, keeps getting rented more and more. When it can no longer be repaired, then mm. the next circular thing to be doing would be to repurpose it into something. So behind me, you know, we got these cushions. So maybe mm -hmm. it's... um something that Christopher Rayburn's really good at doing. So he'll take uh, football shirts. A lot of people buy a football shirt every single season because they want the new new mm. one. That's fine. That's part of people identifying themselves with that, that culture and the community. Mm -hmm. But what happens with those football shirts is, well, in that case, you could be turning these into the cushion. So that person has their mm -hmm. Man United cushion, whatever else. So repurpose is we don't want to go straight to recycling because then, you know, those panels of that material are still really, really good. It might have your favorite footballer in the back and you might want to turn that into a cushion, whatever else it mm. might be. So we always want to think about how we can repurpose, refurbish these items first. And then only once that cushion can't be repaired any longer after many, many years, then are you thinking about recycling. So rental in itself isn't per se circular. You're circulating a product, but you need to also think about those following steps. If you do all of those, then we can start to move in a more circular direction. However, if the rental, I'm renting a product and it comes on a plane all the way from somewhere else in Europe for <laughs> me to wear for two days and it goes all the way back in a plane, it's dry cleaned, then that's going to be hit other areas of sustainability not so favorably. Mm. So we always have to look at the bigger picture as well of we want to have the newness, but we want to do it in a conscious way, way. as well. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think it's so important what you said here because... Again, this this concept of always having stuff new, there's actually a new way of having new stuff. Right. And it's about, as you said, vintage, repurposing, rental in a conscious way, and just thinking about how like innovative ways of having a wardrobe that you can kind of uh, interchange and, and, and just have, yeah, like build your style with those pieces that you buy yeah. from vintage and so on. So... That's so important and so interesting. We're talking about fashion brands, and I think you're working on really interesting stuff right now with Inspire Circular, and you have cool projects as well. I don't know how much you can talk about that, but I'd love to kind of know more about, like, we'd, we'd love to know more about what you actually do, like, with Inspire Circular and your brand and the work that you do with... Um, organizations. Perfect. Frustratingly, I'm under NDAs for quite a few things, but <laughs> depending when this launches, then there might be some things that are public, so we can share right. those for sure. Um, but I think like thinking about how I've set up as a, as a startup and entrepreneur in the, the space is we have the Inspire Circular piece and the Inspire Circular part is all around how do I get uh, my knowledge and other people's knowledge out there as fast as possible around experience within circular economy, what works, what didn't work, make it as easy as possible through uh, courses online. Mm -hmm. 
We also have an element of those are in person, real life. We have live sessions as well, and they'll all launch, uh, launch later on in 2023. So, well, depending when this is launched, that might be <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> present. So they're going to be four-week courses, and yeah. it's not only about the learning and bringing mm -hmm. other experts in to share what their solution is. It's also about building that community that can help one another. So I'm almost cannibalizing myself in terms of being a consultant. Like I want other people to help each other, not reach out to me. And I also want the story by going to wherever it be, like Toast Ale, to show, right, let's look at the, all the waste breads in London from five-star hotel buffets to the <laughs> corner shop that's got the bread. Like, let's see that process. We've maybe heard about it. People that know about circular economy, we've not actually seen it happen. So we're going to places like this, filming it, making really good content. So we just want to inspire people that it's happening. They're mm. probably even involved in it and they don't even know about it right now. So that's going to be all around the Inspire Circular part, right? And then after this, then we also have the Connor Hill Co. part, which is, that's much more around, actually, now let's start to create bespoke solutions for your brand, for your business, and start you on that circular journey. Now, everyone's going to start at different places. So it's about finding out where's the right place to start. You know, mm. it's unlikely a, a brand is going to have the budget resources to do circular economy like straight away in all different corners of it. And when we talk about that, it's, you know, design materials, development, different new business models, the repair, the collection, the recycling. There's so much to it. And on top of that, you've got legislation, innovation, behavior change, marketing. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot, right? Yeah. So it's about finding that sweet spot for them. And then that, that last part is looking at how do we create a brand called Reborn? Now, this is going to be a lifestyle brand. And the mission is not to grow this brand. The mission is to prove circularity is possible here right now. We're going to be 100% transparent around the costings of who gets paid what, where everything was sourced from, how it was dyed. Now, the product won't be perfect, but we want to get as close to circular as possible and we want to prove it's possible today and be transparent mm. about who we're working with. Because a lot of the brands that we work with, they're like, oh, maybe next year, maybe next year. Or they're so big that they're like... I don't know how we're going to integrate this new startup, mm. new technology, new process in our supply chain. It's too difficult. So we want to just say that here, this is the partner we're working with for this, 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 this. We're putting it all into a nice big circular cake and we're going to launch it. So people can experience a circular economy um, if they want to, or they can just read the blueprint of how we've done it and made it commercial. Now, so if nobody buys the stuff... Mm. Fantastic. Mm. We just want to prove that it's possible and there's a margin there enough to support two people or more. So that's really, really important to me that we take people on the journey of inspiring them around circular economy. We offer the consulting and advisory um, around the Connor Hill co-part of where should they start specifically bespoke. And then we also want people to be able to experience it in their life and um, through Reborn. So that's sort of where we are now. Now, there's different partners we work with at different stages there. So the team that I work with there is much more on their flagship and membership side. So for them, it's like, how do we authentically tell the story of what are they doing? So there's little bits. They were like, OK, we're doing this, but like we want to engage our members around it. Uh, in a way that's authentic. So I'm sort of helping them with that storytelling to say, yeah, this is this is like, for me, I'm like, this stuff is amazing. Like, mm. And brands are like, okay, how do we talk about this and be authentic? Mm. So it's, it's really helping them. And a lot of brands are in that same position of they're doing some things which are really credible, really like amazing, but they're actually too scared to talk about it now because mm. they're too scared that someone's going to push back and say, here, that's greenwash. Yeah. So it's, it is a difficult position. Like brands, they're never going to be bulletproof. It's never going to be perfect. And if you wait for that, you know, the moment's going to be passed. So a lot of the time it's like, how do you get the narrative for these various clients we work with to be like, okay, this isn't perfect, but it's progress. And the reason you're doing it is because there isn't a solution there. 
and you need to learn by doing this pilot about where to go next. Mm. So a, a lot of the brands we're working with, it's it's kind of in that space, particularly around circularity where technology is limited or it's really in its early days. I mean, for other people, it's it can be around, okay, how do we start to redesign our products so they can last more than, you know, not days, not weeks, but decades. And that's really interesting because the designers haven't been conditioned to think about making a product to last decades. Mm -hmm. They've been conditioned to make a thing that looks cool, feels nice, and has a certain price point. So, so that's quite interesting, taking brands through that journey of imagine you do this, and then we show them the business model of, oh, actually, if you have a repair service, then you can get the same margin you would if you sold another T-shirt. Or, you know, we've all got that same white T-shirt at home that's now a little bit gray, a little bit yellowed or a little bit stained or not the shape. But the T-shirt itself, the fabric, the materials is still like legit amazing. The colors just may be changed. So how can brands start to offer a service whereby you send back your white T-shirt that's changed a little bit and it comes back and it's perfectly navy using indigo natural dyes or whatever else. So how can brands start to offer services that allow their existing product to last even longer. And they sell that service. So what we love doing is just helping to find out what is that unique service for that brand, unique to that product, consumers are going to get excited about it, and not something that's gimmicky, and it's a one-time thing. It has to be like this initial pilot, which we're doing with a lot of them just now, and hopefully Mm. we'll be able to talk more about them. Then it's about getting the MVP, like, like what is that valuable proposition, and then it's think about, okay, how do we develop this further? Does it go into all stores? Is it an online service? Do we need, what partner do we need for that? So that goes back to the startups. Mm. Who are those enablers? Who's the best one to work with? So yeah, really, really exciting. And yeah, I'd say go back to that original part. Everyone starts in different places. So sometimes we focus on the materials. So again, like the material, the material needs to be right for the product and the user. Mm-hmm. So how does that consumer actually use that product? Well, a lot of brands need to go back and do that data. I might buy a T-shirt and I might go running in it, even though it's a cotton T-shirt, but I just do. Like Some people don't use things as brands expect, and that's really hard for them to design for that. But we need to think about the circular lens of if they're taking the cotton T-shirt and blending polyester with it, it's now a blended product. They probably put the polyester in to make it higher margin. Mm. But now, because you've got the polyester and the cotton, this T-shirt, after many, many years, hopefully, is no longer recyclable or not very easily recyclable today based on today's technologies. Mm. So we need to then also push back to say, okay, how much are you saving there? Uh, how much? Yeah, on the cost of goods versus actually now stopping this from being recyclable or even potentially even going back to nature uh, mm. in the future. So, yeah, lots of different things there. In the course that we're doing, we talk about lots of different case studies mm-hmm. that we've worked on directly. Okay. Um, and then also some other ones where we've got a big network of different people working in different companies, and they want to tell the story as well through that platform. A lot of brands, you know, they have their Instagram. It's not the greatest place to educate people. It's a short form content. Mm. So having that space to say, okay, this is why we decided this. And we went for this. We know it's not perfect, mm. but we wanted to make a move because we were 70% there and now we're going to work on the 30% in parallel. I love the fact that you talk about those initiatives in an innovative way because I feel like sometimes companies, when they're trying to create sustainability strategies or talk a lot about transformation and like long-term stuff, but actually like it's the same in my work. I'm trying to talk about workplace and social innovation and not transformation because it's always about 
finding the right thing for the brand, obviously, but then trying, failing, learning and starting again and having that MVP. And then from that, you know, what's working, what's not working, what should we keep doing and kind of build on that? Because otherwise you kind of build this whole like very heavy long term strategies. And then, you know, I don't know, in, in a year time, things are going to change. And, you know, we've seen that with COVID and stuff and things change very fast all the time. So it's, it's, I think it's really important for, you know, companies to take more of a innovative approach um, to these things. And I think, you know, something that you mentioned as well, and that I'd like to go back to is sometimes, as you said, companies are trying and like sometimes have very good intentions and are building things and trying stuff and then they communicate about it. And, and then sometimes people, as you said, like consumers do not necessarily know all the time what's going on behind the curtain. And and so they're very quick to criticize what's not happening. And, you know, that's why we hear about greenwashing and so on. I think that that's also the problem with those ESG, CSR departments sometimes is that I think they have good intentions and they're trying stuff and they invest in a couple of initiatives and stuff. But... I feel sometimes it's taking too much of an outside-in approach rather than an inside-out approach. And I am a firm believer that also to create change in this industry or even in any industries, but to have an impact outside the organization on people and planet, you also need to start from the inside. Organizations are doing great things like to reduce waste and, you know, they communicate about it or they invest in a certain project, but then inside the organization, it's a, it's, it's a pure mess. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's something I really want to, to like look at in my work is how employees engagement and workplace culture can play a role in that space. So do, do you think that actually employee engagement and workplace culture do play a role in moving the needle when it comes to sustainability and 100%. fashion circularity. Yeah, yeah like um, all the brands that are out there, there's the big brands we all think of straight away, but there, there's thousands and thousands of tiny little brands. And, you know, they might have five employees, they might have less, like they might mm. have 50 employees, but not many of them actually still have a sustainability manager because like employing someone, which I'm learning now more and more, is expensive. If you're a young mm. business, yeah. like having headcount mm-hmm. is, is a luxury. Yeah. So... The brands that have sustainability teams, like, fantastic. If you've got one person, if you've got a team, fantastic. Like, mm-hmm. they, they have to have that, I think. If they want to be a responsible business, fantastic. But for the other majority, those smaller ones, like, this is quite often an add-on to their job. And, and mm-hmm. that's maybe been created because they're super passionate about this. Mm-hmm. And they've managed to create the business case of, here, I want to spend 50, 50% of my time on sustainability. If they've got that, Fantastic. But that one person cannot change the business at all. And almost when that one person is 100% sustainability manager, whatever else, they're not going to be a specialist in packaging, logistics, carbon reporting, water, biodiversity, design, development, uh, legislation. There's Sustainability is as broad as any industry, probably broader than like because it's got so many different niches within it. If you think of the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, there's so many different pillars to that. And under each of them, you need to be like, if you want to be the top, you need to have like a PhD. And I'm like <laughs> far from the top for circularity. I know a lot mm-hmm. and I've got a lot of experience, but I, there's still so many areas I don't know nearly as much I'd like to. And I'm okay with that because 
and need to now reach out to the people who are and build that network further. So for me, yes, you need to inspire everyone in the business. And I think what we do a lot of the time, it's it's like creating that training for everyone in the business to go through. Mm. And don't even make it about their work and their role. You've got to start with them in their life, in their mm. home, whether it be their fridge, whether it be their, their whatever it might be. But start there. Get people to understand, like, why do they care or not care? Ask them, like, what does sustainability mean to you? And someone's going to say, here, it's about the plastic in the ocean. I'm a surfer. That really frustrates me. Like, that's so important to me. And that's what sustainability is to them. And then somebody else in a different country or whatever else might say, here, no, it's it's about literacy rates. It's about equality. It's about diversity. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what sustainability means to them, much more in the social side of things. So mm-hmm. you need to understand that for your workforce, first of all. Like, what does sustainability mean to each of those individuals? Because mm-hmm. if everyone's got very different views, great. But you need to start to understand of how do you inspire them to think about, okay, like, I get that you really are concerned about the plastic in the ocean. How does that relate to your role? Okay, well, the products we're sending out go in a plastic bag. And they're like, yeah, I know, it's so frustrating. So, okay, well, let me help you to do a bit of research in this area and you can start to champion the plastic in our packaging and looking for alternatives mm-hmm. or even no packaging. Could that be a solution? Something that's reusable. And then there's someone that's on the, you know, looking at how can we increase literacy rates um, across the world or in the global south. Think about them. Okay, what about our suppliers? Do they just pay the workers and they clock out and they go home? How could you work with those suppliers to offer additional things? Mm. So you can get that person to champion that part of sustainability, engagement, uh, workforce, all of those sort of areas. So it's about finding out, yeah, for me, what makes that person tick around sustainability. If they don't care about it at all, that's that's fine. Um, but there'll probably be a, enough people that are, like do care about it and start to think about how you can then build into the role only after that. And that's thinking about, okay, for this business, like sustainability, again, really difficult to address everything in the first couple of years. You got to pick the ones which are you're having the biggest negative impact on the world. So are you a very water intensive business? Are you creating a product that uses a lot of cotton or heavy chemicals? Like those are the areas you probably want to address first, like your hotspots. But you might want to, in parallel, do some things which might create behavior change in others. Or you Mm -hmm. might be like, here, we don't have a solution. There isn't a solution out there. Let's actually focus on speaking to our competitors in this first year to try Mm -hmm. and work out, have they got the same challenges and can we come together there? So you agree that with certain elements of sustainability just now, that teams can spend so much time filling in reports, proving what they're doing, And these come around every single year. And if you're doing five of them, that's a huge time commitment for that team to be working on. Mm -hmm. And they'll also have their internal reporting to do. So I do sometimes say to clients, like, right, let's just focus on the certain external engagements that are really going to happen and help with the strategy we've already agreed to. Mm. If it's just about signing a piece of paper and the CEO being there on the stage at the time, it's not really like it, it might be great. But is there bandwidth in the team to work within that collaboration, add value and get value back? Because a lot mm-hmm. of brands will sign up to it and they, the team, the sustainability team, can't attend all these things or they just end up being on the road all the time yeah. rather than actually delivering the sustainability strategy. So it is a challenge and I think it's really important for brands not to sign up to everything and just mm-hmm. be a little bit strategic there. And where they are finding challenges, then that is the time to create collaboration. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, it's a lot of teamwork and it goes back to the purpose of the business and the vision and how it connects to 
I guess, employees' purpose as well and employees' interest and passion. So, And I think sometimes the biggest brands out there, they've got to take responsibility for every part of sustainability. There's no excuse there. Yeah. Like their profits are insane some of the times. So they have to be looking at biodiversity in all these other areas. I think they have to have specialists in-house that support that. And they have to be on these global stages proving what they're doing so that others who don't have that same budget and profit can learn from them and, and join them. But I'm more in that last point I was making is like those smaller brands, like sometimes they just need to focus exactly what you're saying mm. is let's just get our in-house order done. Let's hit off those low hanging opportunities that we can change incrementally, start moving. And we want to find those big challenges that we do need genuine support with externally. And you can do that in cost effective ways as well. It doesn't need to be joining a membership that costs a lot of money. Mm -hmm. It could be actually just creating a hackathon, inviting mm -hmm. a couple of local unis along. So there's lots of different ways around it as well. Yeah, it, it again, it goes back to this idea of really creating partnerships in the industry or uh, between those like change makers and, and businesses, because that's the only way we can actually move forward. Because, yeah, as you said, no one is an expert in everything. Totally. And everyone has a specific knowledge in one specific field. And, you know, just the fact of working together, it's just bringing so much more solution and, and progress. So you've said something as well. And I think, you know, that that's really um, a reflect of your personality because I feel like each time you talk about circular fashion, you're so positive about it. And I think this is also very, very important when it comes to sustainability. And I feel, and I think, you know, we're allowed to think that that media and the press kind of have a negative uh, voice sometimes when it comes to sustainability. And something that you said in one podcast that you recorded, you said uh, it's it's not about what we do bad, it's about how we do good for the planet. And I think that's so important because you also mentioned the Netflix documentary, Seaspiracy. And I mean, I watched it and I ended up being really, you know, shocked and really self-conscious about the things that I do wrong. And I think that in a way, yes, it creates lots of really good conversations and important conversation. And I think that's actually um, bringing progress. But then there's also this side where it creates a lot of anxiety mm -hmm. of, you know, like all the things that we do wrong. And it doesn't necessarily bring tangible, positive solution. Like at the end of the documentary, you're like, okay, but what should I do? Like, okay, I need to stop eating fish. But is it really going to stop the whole, you know, the whole thing. So I think it's really important to have that positive and, and, and proactive conversation about how do we do good and where do we start from now to really um, move the needle and get out of this negative zone some, mm. sometimes that the media and press bring. So, you know, because we're getting to the end of the podcast, I'd really like to finish on a positive note and kind of get your view of, you know, all the, the great work or like positive things that you've seen happening. There's so much really great stuff happening behind the scenes. So can you give us an example of a great initiatives that you've seen happening um, to change our economy to be more circular? So because you're from France, I think <laughs> let's, let's connect it back to this. Yeah, um, there's cool stuff happening in France. Uh, the French government are doing a lot at the moment, mm. particularly in the last like couple months. There's a lot that's come out and 
I think we've not seen that many good examples of where governments can create change mm. and legislating change. So in pretty much well, most markets, when a brand or private sector does something around sustainability, it's almost entirely voluntary. It's very few countries that have legislation which is forcing companies to do these initiatives, projects, pilots and stuff like that around the circular economy or sustainability. So in France, just sort of going off the top of my head, there was a couple. So one that comes to me straight away is, I think from memory, it's if your car park is over 80 spaces in it, car park spaces in it, it must be covered in solar by like 2025, something mm -hmm. like that. So I'm like, brilliant. These are car parks. It's not like it's biodiversity heaven or anything like that. There's not much happening there. Why not put something over the top? It's probably going to shelter the car in the summer anyway from heat. And putting the solars on top of it, fantastic. Generating energy and potentially if those cars are electric, plug them in directly. So I think there's things like that which are fantastic. There's other elements around, okay, they're taking away single-use plastic from certain fruits and vegetables where it just doesn't make sense. And there's a lot of studies there that says that if you buy fruits in a packet of six or, or more, that you actually don't consume all of them before they go bad. Mm. So there used to be this age-old argument that packaging helps preserve foods, and it's true to an extent, but actually you're buying more sometimes than you actually need. So there's that legislation there. They've just made it that if you're in having fast foods and you're dining in, it must be in a reusable container. So again, you go to fast food in, in France or anywhere really in the world, it's a lot of in, it's in disposable stuff. So that must be in reusable containers, and that's 1st of January 2023. So this is all really good. And I'm not saying it's massively innovative. Pretty much it's going back to what we did before. Mm -hmm. And a lot of restaurants that are doing sit-in are using ceramics anyway that are reused thousands of times. Mm -hmm. So that's great. And then they're also now giving people a... I don't actually know how the mechanics of it works perfectly, but if your laptop breaks, your TV breaks, your fridge breaks, they actually give you a cash incentive or an incentive some way. And again, I don't know how it works exactly to get it repaired. And the government's helping towards that rather than you going to buy a new one. That's amazing for creating new green jobs, bringing back skills that have maybe moved away as it was just cheaper for people to buy new technology rather than get it repaired. Mm. So for me, that's a huge amount of positivity. And there's probably another five pieces of legislation that I've forgotten about. So I think for me, I'm really positive around that. And I hope other governments, including the one where we are <laughs> right now, start to learn from this. Yeah. And that it creates jobs. It's good for the economy. And yeah, people start will start to change behavior. They'll start to buy better quality things. And hopefully the manufacturers start to make better quality products as well. But that needs legislation as mm. well. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And it's true. Like I've always been so surprised and, and shocked by the amount of plastic packaging that we have here. There's too much to buy in that one packaging and you can't buy them uh, piece to piece. Well, I think in France, we have more of this mm -hmm. thing where you can buy one potatoes if you want. Like you don't need to have one kilo of potatoes in uh, plastic packaging or something. Um, and I think they're actually going to, there is a legislation as well about stopping all plastic packaging in supermarkets by... I think 2025 or something yeah. in France. Yeah. And uh, it's like a staged approach. So it's certain fruits like yeah. now or about to be now, and yeah. then it'll move up into other categories. Yeah. 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 Well, it's good. I mean, it's good to have that positive thing about like France to talk about. I think it's, it's good that France is doing that for sure. Well, we're getting to the end of this podcast episode. I mean, it's been so interesting and I personally learned so, so much from 
your experience and all the knowledge that you have about um, the circular economy is absolutely amazing. And I wish we could, I could talk about it like for hours, really. But let me um, then ask you like the two signature questions of the podcast to finish on. So because the podcast is called Wonder Workers, and after all the things that we talked about today, what would you say is your superpower? Great question. Probably being like a visionary, something like this, mm-hmm. or something Futuristic. around like, yeah, like optimism, mm-hmm. something like this, an ability to inspire people and believe that like it is possible. Mm-hmm. Something, uh, maybe that yes for one, but I've just kind yeah. of like cheated no, and put a few in there. That's all um, It's something that gives me energy and even like yourself saying, like you joined some of the clubhouse events that I did a couple of years ago or a year ago. And I think there's elements of, when you niche down in any industry, you get really technical, right? Mm. And that almost excludes some people because like, oh, I don't know what they're talking about. So my thing is just making it super basic, super mm. easy. And then people are like, whoa, that isn't so difficult. Like, mm. I don't need to have done a degree in this. So just making it really, really easy for people and make them feel like, wow, I'm making a difference. So that's my thing that I, I love doing and, yeah, will continue to do. Amazing. Well, I, I actually really felt that today as well, like really inspired by all the things that you've said and that visionary thinking and just giving practical steps and things that people can actually do. And it's, yeah, it doesn't sound that difficult at the end. So, yeah, amazing. And last question, who would you like to hear from next in this podcast? Oh, great question. Uh, Mike Barry. Mike Barry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He, so he was one of my first bosses. He was my f- boss at Marks and Spencers. And um, yeah. wow, he knows his stuff. He's been around the tables, the, the board tables and so many international brands and is very well connected. And he's a pleasure to sit beside and listen and knows his stuff and um, knows how to get people to, to change their mindset, particularly around that executive board table. Um, mm, which is so, so important. Us mm. as consumers, we can change a lot. But if we can really get the mindset of those CEOs to change because we make it personal to them, mm. whether we connect it to their life, their kids, whatever it might be, he's been in those boardrooms and, and knows how to do it. Wow. Okay. Well, I guess I'll probably like get in touch with him or something because that sounds really interesting. And I'd love to get that view too, is how does it work on a board level? So amazing. Well, Thank you so much, Corner, for your time. I mean, it's been such a great conversation. Perfect. Thank you so much. Really, really enjoyed it. And uh, all the best with the podcast. Thank you. Bye. Follow the Wonder Workers podcast so that every two weeks you can get notified when a new episode is out. And I must say, if you don't, that's okay. But that would be a big miss because we have more inspiring and powerful guests to come. So let's meet up in two weeks for a new episode of Wonder Walkers, a podcast that transports you into the world of our modern change catalysts and empowers you too to change the world. This podcast is created and hosted by me, Laura Warnod, founder of The Culture Cabinet. Thank you to Content is Queen for producing the podcast. But above all, thank you for listening. See you soon.